Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear the story of someone strong enough to bear it all. The Naked Podcaster is a representation of freeing yourself, giving you permission to be real in all your quirkiness, baggage, struggles to success, and tragedy to triumph. I'm so excited you're joining the journey. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. This is your host, Jen Taylor. Today I'm with Nancy Allen. Nancy, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Nancy and I know each other through cyber uh, space here, so I'm very excited to have you on. Your website is called taleofthebell.com. Everything's in show notes, but let's start out. Tell me what it is and what your goal is and who you are through that. So Tale of the Bell is the company I formed um, 2017, actually. And it became a, a formulation of kind of a lifetime of really trying to figure out who I was and kind of stepping into it and saying, I want to make a difference. I want what I've been through throughout my life to be something that I can use to help someone else. So what Tale of the Bell is, I... Um, coach and do a podcast on uh, incest survivors. And the name is tail, T-A-I-L, of the bell, meaning it's the tail end of the bell curve. And so I'm a mathematical person. I'm an actuary by um, professional trade. And so I think of it as, you think about a normal curve, you think about like height, and you'd have people in in the middle that are around the average, And then at the ends, you'll have people that are very, very short, and you'll have people that are very, very tall at the other end. So you'll have, those are the tails, when you graph them at those heights. So anyway, when I look at it and I say, if you look at individual plots or individual people, they disappoint. But when you put that group together, you form a community, and that community sits at the end, the extreme end of what I call the life experiences curve. So that's how the name came about. That is, I didn't know. I always <laughs> wondered. And uh, that's really exceptional. So you have this platform. People will love it because there's so much here. Like you said, you um, coach and mm-hmm. you have a podcast. You have a podcast with a lot of people with their own experience on mm-hmm. incest. And then you have um, these guests that are professionals that mm-hmm. talk about. And I love that you try, you do your best to line up a person's story and that expert that kind of goes along with it, with that mm-hmm. information. Yeah, I think that's important because what, when I have a guest on that is, is a survivor, I really like that guest to be able to share as much as what they want in their own words. And so they are sharing a specific topic around how they experienced it. And if it's a technical topic like dissociation or something along those lines, I will try and bring on an expert who will then explain what is going on in the brain, what's happening, how common is this phenomenon, so that, again, I'm trying to take an individual survivor's perspective and making it broader and also to try and eliminate that notion of it's my fault, it's only me, I'm isolated, I'm different, I'm whatever. Because uh, it's not true, generally. And that expert helps to do that. 
I love that. I also uh, love that you're from Massachusetts because I'm from New England. So my accent tries to come out <laughs> hardcore when we talk. <laughs> it's funny. It's like I'm, I'm from Massachusetts, but I've been living in Georgia for the last five years. Yeah. And it's really funny because I don't notice that I have an accent. And then I go home to Massachusetts, right? And I come back and it's just like, and I walk. I've got R's on things that shouldn't have R's. And <laughs> well, I, I'm from Rhode Island in Vermont, and I lived in Louisiana. And first of all, they don't like the damn Yankee, but you know that's what they I was called. And but also, you know, there's two real extreme accents going on there, <laughs> battling. But I think for those of us that are from the New England area, we hear just the slightest little on one word and I'm, and all of a sudden it's like a dog that goes on point, you know, where they're like, mm-hmm. bing. <laughs> so, I just, I'm just very hyper aware of your accent. Yep. So take yep. us back and back for you can be at whatever point things happen to you. I know quite a bit about your uh, story, but mm-hmm. no one else does. So just start wherever you want, Massachusetts. Yeah. So I was um, the, sixth of eight children <laughs> um and we're pretty close in age that is um 12 years between the oldest and the youngest and i um my parents were both professional my father was a podiatrist and my mother was a nurse practitioner and we were very much a um how do i call it uh, a traditional italian family my father was first generation american so um we lived with my grandmother in the extended family type thing until i was about nine and then we moved to another town. Um, and so it, it, for me, it was always a strict Catholic upbringing. So, you know, sexuality, sex, none of that was ever talked about in the house. It was, you know, Catholic guilt is, you know, <laughs> I went to a Catholic school for first and second grade, you know. So um, my father used to do um, the nuns, do podiatry care for the nuns and priests free of charge. I mean, just crazy, you know, just, it was really connected to the church. Um, but besides all that, um, when I was, uh, how old was I? I was 13 when my father had a pretty significant heart issue and he was hospitalized for a period of time. And he was one of the first quadruple bypass that was done in um, Mass General, actually back in 77. Um, and so he came home to recuperate after being in the hospital for months. And so my mother went, shifted her job. So she started working three to 11. And so I was at that time, 12, 13, and basically being the nursemaid for my father. So that meant, you know, whatever you needed, I would do if you needed a backup, if you needed, you know, medication, if you needed whatever. And it gradually progressed into more than that and the first time one day he called me into his room and I thought he needed something and a, a, I asked for a backpack but it was a little bit different because this time he's naked and he basically at that point asked me to, to masturbate for him and it it just um it progressed from there that you know I remember kind of running from the room with what the heck just happened? What, uh, you know, I mean, not understanding, having no concept of what, what even what sex and sexuality was. Um, and it just kind of progressed from there over the course of a year where eventually it, it turned into 
uh, rape um, and oral sex on me. Um, and it was just one of these, it would happen, I started to learn to try and avoid him. He eventually went back to work and I really tried to avoid him. So I would spend a lot of time really hiding in the attic. If I was the first person home from school, then if I would go up to the attic and I would sit and I would study and I would read and I would be sitting up there with just a flashlight and just kind of waiting to hear who came in the house. And if it was my siblings, then I'd jump down and run out of the house from there's a second floor. So I'd jump off the, the deck, off the second floor deck, jump over to the camper and then kind of climb down and then pretend that I just came home from school and just walk in the house, you know, no big deal. If it was my father, I would be sitting up there very, very quiet and just waiting for him to somebody else to come home uh, because just to avoid being alone with him. So there was benefits to that in that because I was spending so much time studying, I really got into complex type math stuff because to me, it was the way that I was living in a chaotic world. And here in math, I could find something very logical. You could always get from point A to point E. You go through B, C, D, and E. And to get there, and to me, that was like logic in this chaos. and, And I fell in love with math through that and um, I had some teachers start to take an interest in me so I found nurturing in school as a side kind of component of, of that but as the summer this is this now um, the spring of the following year and it's been going on for about a year and in the summers I was expected to help my father out in his podiatry practice he had his own office and I, I knew that I would end up spending a lot of one-on-one alone time with him in between patients during breaks, whatever. And I knew that he would very much have access. And I was just terrified. Um, and I just started withdrawing. I was depressed. I was, and I had a teacher who had really connected with me that reached out to me and really reported, really checking in, is everything okay? That kind of stuff. And in the end, basically reported me to the, sent me just to the guidance counselor who in turn after a number of visits, which was kind of crazy. I mean, I, I came to the conclusion that my father told me that if I had said something to someone that they wouldn't understand and that I would cause harm to the family. So I was thinking that that's what would happen. Right. And it would be my fault. Um, so instead I tried to keep it quiet and I didn't say anything to these counselors who then ended up referring me to a therapist. And while I was in therapy, um, I eventually, uh, my, I was staying over to one of my oldest sisters who was eight years older than me. And she, my mother was away and so I was visiting my sister. And my sister asked me basically, why was I seeing the therapist? And for some reason, she went to work and for some reason I just was, I don't know. I felt connected. I felt, I felt like um, it was okay to say something. And so I shared with her what my father was doing. The next thing I know, my sister calls me and says, I'm going to get you help. I thought that he had stopped with me. He promised he had stopped with me. And I'm like, what, wait a minute. What, 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 what just happened? Because some of this was like, very mixed emotions going on here. Like 
here I am thinking my father's set me up to believe that I was special, that I was, you know, that I, I was the one and only. And so that was kind of the, nobody, people just wouldn't get it. Now all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, he liked me. I wasn't special. So there's that piece of this component happening. And the other side of this, it just started this whole dominoes where now my sister comes to my therapy session with me and my sister tells the therapist. And now it's the first year of mandatory reporting in the state of Massachusetts, 1978. And it's now reported it to the Department of Social Services, Child Protective Services. And I get pulled from the home with my younger brother and sister. And it was just one night in an emergency foster home, but it was a very, very traumatic night. But I remember going to the courthouse before we were actually placed into emergency foster care and calling all these other people, all these relatives, and this time it's pay phones, right? And my sister's calling my aunts and uncles, my, you know, anybody we could think of to see if they would take us because they wouldn't allow her to take us because he had a key to her apartment. And um, so everybody just said, no, nobody would take the three of us even for just one night. And so that's how I ended up in an emergency foster care placement, which just kind of, again, reiterated to me that, yep, I was bad. I was this horrible thing that nobody wanted. Um, so we ended up spending a night in foster care. Um, which was an interesting night in and of itself. And then the next morning, I got picked up to go to court. My little brother and sister did not. They stayed in the foster home for the day, whatever long we were out. And so I remember going to court, and I remember the judge sitting up at, you know, high up at this elevated platform um, desk, and come into this courtroom where there's probably 15 people in this courtroom. My parents are on the right side with two or three people that I don't know, and I knew that they were their attorneys. My oldest sister is on the other side with somebody different from Child Protective Service, and then I believe it was um, an advocate um, and a couple of other people. And then I had my other oldest sister and her husband in the back as well, and there was a couple of other people. Ooh, I don't even know who they were. And so I'm asked to come up and just stand in front of the judge. And basically tell them, did your father, what did your father do? And I, I lost my voice, literally lost my voice. I couldn't say anything, you know. Um, believe me, I learned how to dissociate. <laughs> and so I was yeah. kind of, I knew I wasn't there, you know. Um, but it was just, it felt like it was forever. It was probably five minutes. Um, but it was this, you need to tell us what he did. Did he do this? Did, you know, you said this. Is that true? And I couldn't say anything. So at the end, I was, um, you know, escorted out of the, the courtroom and waited till, you know, whatever happened, happened. And I remember my parents coming out and my father, my mother sitting beside me and my oldest sister, who's not the one that reported it with me, but one year older than that, um, saying to my mother, we're going to take care of them. Don't worry about it. They're with me. We'll take, we'll take care of them. I'm trying to figure out what the heck just happened. And nobody's talking to me. And I see my father come out and he mouths to my mother, I'm sorry. He wouldn't even look at me. So there's this, I don't know, another kind of rejection kind of happening. And anyway, um, I ended up 
uh, being placed for uh, into uh, a kinship foster care placement with my brother and sister, my younger brother and sister, to my oldest sister and her husband, and who lived in a different town. And it was a basically what the court had just done was reconfirmed for everything that my father had told me would happen that they wouldn't understand. They would blame me. They would separate the family. That. And I walked away from that thinking I was equally at fault as he was. I got the same punishment that he did. He was ordered out of the house. I was ordered out of the house. He was ordered into therapy. I was ordered into therapy. So here it is just reinforcing for me that that's what's going on. And there was nothing that counteracted that. And so I, I went back. We were brought back into the home. Um, it was a couple months later because I started high school actually in the town um, where I was from. And he, um, I just kind of vowed that I would never say anything again because his, um, he was right. I mean, the intervention, in my view, was worse than what he was doing. Um, and that's the child's mind, right? Plus, I really blamed myself. So within six months of me returning home, while the state still had a guardianship, my parents had physical custody, but they, the state still had guardianship, so they still had oversight, and they were still involved. Um, my father got me pregnant. Oh, my and, God. And it was, I was 14, and just before my 15th birthday. And he, I, I, it was very public. Or it was well, public in the sense that I was on a school trip into Washington, D.C., and I was having just terrible, terrible abdominal pains. And so my teacher took me to the emergency room, and they found out, they basically thought that I was miscarrying, um, and, and they found out that I was pregnant. But my teacher knew that. Um, I remember coming home from there um, after, and... Um, my teacher's expecting that my parents would have me at the airport waiting, right, and to pick us up or having the ambulance waiting because um, they were going to keep me overnight and they decided not to. And they didn't. So I went, he was frustrated, but I, so I went home and I went to back to the school with, on the bus with the rest of the class and my parents picked me up there. But I remember that night where my mother and father, my father was arguing with my mother that it wasn't me that um, she's a goddamn whore who, you know, I don't know who the hell she's sleeping with, but it wasn't me. And my mother was more trying to calm him down and to deal with it that way. She never said anything to me, and he never said anything to me. So it became that moment where I realized this is, I'm, I'm on my own here. This is something that I just have to deal with myself. And I did. You said that you're the six of eight kids and you have at least two older sisters. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's like a really tight, you have one, a younger sister and a brother mm-hmm. and you have at least two older sisters. Were there other girls older than you? No. So there's four girls and four boys. Okay. So I had one younger and two older. Yeah. And the younger sister, I mean, I'm sorry, the older sister that you had stayed with that went to therapy with you said, he said he wouldn't do it again. So clearly she went through the same process. What yeah. about your oldest sister that you stayed with? So when I was first, um, like I said, I mean, moved when I was nine years old. 
And prior to that, we actually lived in a two-family house that my grandmother owned, my father's mother. And it, it was a very small home. There was um, three bedrooms upstairs. And so there were basically eight kids and my parents in three bedrooms. Uh, so there was a boys' room and a girls' room, and then my parents' bedroom. And then, so in there, my grandmother lived downstairs in her own place by herself. So my, my oldest sister was 12 years old. My father sent my oldest sister down to live with my grandmother. And so he never touched her. Um, it was the next one that he started with. Uh, was wow. younger than her. Yeah. And so as this came out, it was some of this kind of confusion or thoughts around why not her? Why not? And, you know, right. So she's questioning that almost kind of like the Barbara's guilt, right? Right. It was different about her. You know, um, it was kind of a strange kind of sensation, but I mean, everybody reacts and responds in their own way. Did she even know until this came out with you? Like, did the, did the sister that was a year different ever say anything to her? Because I understand the survivor's guilt. I would, I completely relate to, to her feeling that way. Yeah. She well, didn't know anything? My oldest sister did not know anything. The, wow. However, in the, the second oldest sister. Yes. Um, she had told me that she had told my uncle, my father's only brother, and my grandmother, my father's mother, and that they had talked to him and that he had promised that he wouldn't do anything and he would stop. And we have to keep this in perspective. It's not a New England thing. It's a 1970s, yeah. you know, I mean, that doesn't make it excusable. Um, Italian, multi-generation, family, very religious. You don't even, you know things are wrong when it starts, but you don't even know why or how or what or if it's weird or, you know, I mean, people are like, well, how did you do it? Well, like, what are the options? You know, like right. you said, the options were worse. And he was very wise in what he told you about the family being s- split apart and that you'd go through the same thing because it happened exactly like, of exactly. course it did. So, and he and said it was horrible. Yeah. And so my father was a very, very bright man. Um, and I, I don't know, in some ways, I think that he, he picked me out in some ways because um, I, I mean, I'm clearly intelligent, right? And it was this mind game with him. And it was, yeah, you talk about grooming, right? It was, right. He would set me up, set me up, set me up. And I'd kind of become complacent and start to believe and then wham, something would happen, you know? And it was just right. constant. Um, and even though you were in state custody, you were physical custody with your parents and you never, you didn't want to say a word. They never asked I actually later okay. on when I when I was in my late twenties, I actually my my siblings and my mother. I'll I'll make it that later. But my, okay, okay. I got okay, the, sorry. I got the Department of Social Services records and actually read all of the interviews and all of their impressions. They never asked. They never met with me one on one. Yeah. God, that sucks. And also, <laughs> it's not an excuse, but I mean. They, they, like you said, it was a first year. 78 yeah. was the first, right? Yeah. So they this is no a very new, no, they did not. And now again, I'm not trying to make excuses about it. You just, people don't understand. Like if that happened for a hot second right now, you would never see your father again. He would yeah. never, right? Yeah. And instead what happened was it reinforced for me yep. that he was this um, pillar of the community. I mean, I remember being a kid and walking down the street with him in the North End where he also worked in a clinic down there. 
and and people would come up to him all the time yeah, and just be telling me well, he's such an amazing man and he's oh. just this generous kind and giving and I'm so lucky to have him as a father and you know all of this and, and that was so he's a little too a giving and kind <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Not to make light on a really um, So you got pregnant and you miscarried. Is that the first that you knew you were pregnant? Yes. And okay. So you yeah. had no inclination before that. I had no idea. And and um so at that point it I, I don't know, it it shifted for me. And it shifted for me in the reality of my mother was siding with my father. And so I realized I had no ally in my mother and that was not gonna change. And I realized too that if I said something again, that it was just going to be, um, it, it was going to be more of the same. And I, I, I really felt that intervention was worse than what was happening. It so, wasn't necessarily better. I mean, they really did not know what they were doing. It exactly. wasn't great. It was not. Yeah. It it was not a great situation. Yeah, but I was, and I was pulled from everything that I knew. Right. So. Yeah. So when I, I was 15, I actually met the guy who eventually would become my husband. And he was the only guy I ever dated. <laughs> and he actually really helped me to get through my teenage years. Um, I My father never stopped. Um, it went on until I was in my mid or early 20s. And I, I was kind of living a parallel life. It, it was happened when I, even when I was married, because I got married when I was just turned 21. Um, the frequency of it shifted because I would really try and avoid, but, but he came much more brutal. And it's like, now he knew he was going to get away with it. He knew that I wasn't yeah. going to say anything. And it became this cat and mouse, um, almost kind of sexual torture um, situation. And, um, there were a couple of instances where he gave me to, he, he was into trying to get into swinging if he, mm-hmm. and he wanted, um, he basically used me in that, in that context. Um, and it was just this crazy situation that I, I focused on, I would escape and study in and I would escape with um, my boyfriend at that time. And, uh, what about your younger sister? Just as a side note, and any of the boys. So here I am thinking that if my father's with me, then he wouldn't do anything to her. He was physically abusive to all of us. Um, he had a temper that, you know, it's like we were the band of eight, uh, like the eight musketeers that y- you could be picking on each other. But when it was all of us against, if we banded together when we needed to, um, and helped each other and covered for each other and, and all of that kind of thing. But he was physically abusive to, um, to the boys more so than the girls. Um, the girls at a certain age, he stopped being that kind of physically um, abusive because it became sexual. Um, so my younger sister, um, I also had the notion that I was protecting her. If he was with me, he wouldn't be with her. Because he, I believed if he was one at a time. Um, he had stopped with my oldest sister. Um, so I went off to college when I was 18. And I went to 
uh, a school in New York. And I was in school three months and then home three months. I was a co-op student. It was the only way that I could afford to go to school. And I was determined to really try and to get out and just, and I knew having watched my older siblings that the way out was to go to college and to get a job and to move on. And so one of the reasons that my mother said that she stayed with them was because she just didn't think that financially that she could have supported the eight children um, by herself. And so I was this, I'm never going to be financially dependent on anyone. (laughs) And that was my motivation. You know, it was, you know, I needed to be in control. I needed to be clear cut of my destiny. And, and so I went to college. Um, I did a five year program in two and a half years where I was working full time because <laughs> that was my escape. It was the way I knew it was my way out and I was going to get through it and I was going to get out. Um, and my father had always told me that I was his until I got married. And so that was it. I was getting married. <laughs> Absolutely. I would, in a heartbeat, like in a heart, because by now it's been going on for eight years. At yeah, that point, I was 21 when I when I got married. Yeah, right. I mean, eight years, and now you know how wrong it is, and now you know yeah. other. I mean, like you and get it, and you've miscarried, and yeah. And I I didn't stand out. I in that time period, I had been suicidal twice, um, and I had tried to go to therapy in high school. I had a teacher try and help me to get into therapy, and I couldn't talk. I would sit and just cry in the sessions because I knew that I was going to go home and my father was going to be there. I tried talking to a priest and the priest, after listening to me, gave me my penance, literally. (laughs) Oh God, that's so Catholic. (laughs) So in all of this, it's again reinforcing that this is my fault. And so I really, there's one level you don't believe that it is, but at another level, I... It was just reinforced and reinforced from everywhere. My grandmother told me, just don't entice them. My, I mean, it was just, you list all these things and you put them all together. And the picture is, I interpreted it absolutely that I was at fault for this and that somehow I was contributing. And that the only way that I was going to change that was to do something um, to get out. So you got married at 21 to the guy that you were with from 15. and mm-hmm. But you said your dad still continued on after he that. He continued on for a couple of years after that. Um, but it was not frequent because he moved to Maryland. What did your husband think of that? And He didn't know. Okay. But he knew my father would, he's like, my father would give him um, porn, porn magazines as gifts. Yeah. He would, he was this, he, I really think that he was a sociopath. Um, yeah. And he would just, so there was an episode um, where there was a, a sheep involved. So, I mean, when I'm going to talk about sexual torture, he was really kind of becoming sadistic and reliving or, or playing out all his fantasies with me. And so there was this episode where there was a sheep. And, and I'm not going to get into it, <laughs> into it but um, for whenever he would then come visit, he would wear a shirt that had a sheep on it. And he would pick up books and read books to my children that were about sheep and farm animals. And it, But that's what he was like. It was this constant reminder, this constant kind of, I know you know, and I know you know what this means. Mm-hmm. Um, it was this psychological kind of crap going on. 
um, really until he died. How many kids did you end up having? So I had um, two children biological. Okay. And then I adopted two children through the foster care system <sighs> in my 30s. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my father died when I was 28. And I lost it. I became, I was seriously suicidal and I was hospitalized um, for a period of time. And um, was, did you checked yourself into that hospital? I checked myself in. Um, I was, my husband was out with my two children at the time. They were one and three. And I just remember sitting there with a bottle of pills and just, I can't do this to my kids. I just can't do this to my kids. So I called a, an emergency line. They asked me to come in. I went in and they helped me get into a hospital. And I was in a hospital for 19 days. And then I came out. Um, and uh, here now, I'm like, I'm a manager in a, as an actuary in a company. And I now have to go explain to my boss what the heck was going on. So, and then when I came back to work, I had to, I was being triggered. I mean, I, I clearly had PTSD. And I was being triggered all the time with, um, I couldn't handle people coming up behind me. I couldn't handle a man standing in a doorway. Um, so I needed help from the men in the department to be acknowledging that you can't do this because you're going to make me freak out. So my boss um, actually worked with me to get all the men in the department together and talk to them about what was going on and what I needed from them. And here I am terrified now that I, what kind of a response is this going to be? Um, I'm the primary breadwinner. My husband's stay-at-home dad with the kids. And I need this job, right? And um, it was an amazing, amazing response. For the first time in my life, I openly talked about this. And I was acknowledged that, of course, it wasn't my fault. And that, uh, you know, can't believe that you went through this. How can we help? And it was such an embracing that I received from my coworkers and my, my boss that it was just reaffirming for me that it was the, what I really needed was to find acceptance. And I found it in a place that I was amazed. I'm amazed. I mean, I'm completely choked up, which it's the second time ever on my podcast <laughs> in over a hundred episodes that I've been the one that started to cry. <laughs> so I tried to make you cry, Nancy, <laughs> but really I mean, going through something at that level of horrific and then having to expose that level of horrific to get that kind of feedback to help you, that's, that's amazing in any generation and in, in yeah. any time period. Yeah. And in so, the process of that, my, my mother stepped up, literally okay. stepped up. Okay. It was like the floodgates opened for her as well. And I... She she came to therapy with me. She took every, I mean, I laid it out with her, I mean, with the help of a therapist and really challenged her and called her on, why weren't you there? Why didn't you protect me? What, this was your, and she owned it, literally owned it. And she helped me try and get his therapy records, which we couldn't, they couldn't find. Because I was like, I try to understand why, who, who he was, right? We couldn't find his records, but she tried. And she helped me, get the Department of Social Services 
and all my brothers and sisters also helped me get the social services records. So that I'm really trying to piece together the whole, all of the components. Um, because it was, in order to really let myself see that it really wasn't my fault, I had to see the progression. So I had to place that together in a chronological timeline and understand how I went from here to here to here to here, right? Because allowing something like this to happen as an adult very different than when it's a 13 year old kid. You had but, children by this time also. I mean, for you, I I know for me, the moment, I never understood how a woman could allow th- something to happen to her kids. Mm-hmm. And your mom's heard about this several times. I mean, like, it, she's not not aware. And I'm guessing she's not stupid either. So she could have probably put some stuff together. And I know that when I first held my first daughter was born. I held her. I thought, how in the hell could you have looked at your kids and allowed this to happen? Yeah. It was yeah, much harder it. for me after I was a parent. So you I really went through that with her though. I did. And she really owned it. She, um, she, she, she owned it. She, and she apologized and eventually actually she moved in with me and <sighs> She was, we became friends. I mean, uh, she was never going to be a mother to me in the sense of what you would expect a mother, but she became a grandmother to my children. And, and um, like I said, she really stepped up. And I really believe that for her, I think she was abused herself. She admitted that she was abused herself and she just was overwhelmed and didn't know. She did everything that the Department of Social Services told her to do. They didn't help. So she was like, what's my recourse? Well, I get that as unfortunate as that is. I mean, it's really sad that we can understand that with some hindsight that your mom didn't have very many options, but still. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was able to forgive my mother, I mean, on my father's deathbed, he had called me from the night before that he went in, he was going to have another quadruple bypass. And the night before he called me and I'm on the phone with him. And he says to me, I'm sorry, can you please forgive me? And I, I wouldn't give it to him. I handed the phone to my husband and I walked away. And I have no idea what he said to him, but I, I couldn't do it. My mother, I could forgive, but I've never been able to do that for my father. And you don't need to. I, know. <laughs> I mean, well, I, know. I mean, I know you know that. But like, <laughs> what women out there need to understand is that they don't. You don't need to forgive that person. You do yep. need to forgive yourself because yeah. all of the years and years and years and years of blame that have now accumulated, yep. and the PTSD, just the whole. I mean, the acts it themselves are one thing that you have to heal from, but the emotional assault is completely yep. a different. I mean, yeah. So. How was your husband in all of this? So during that time when I was hospitalized, it came out to my husband that he had never stopped. And so it created this, so now we're, I mean, it was, I went through two years of, in craziness of, you know, between, I was challenging every relationship I was ever had. I was really trying to figure out who I was. I was going through nightmares and PTSD that I, I, I'm not even sure. I mean, I don't know how the guys stay with me, but I mean, at the end of it, um, he came to terms and he in some ways blamed himself because mm. he was there 
he was growing up with me and he, I didn't tell him and he didn't see it and he didn't know. And so there's a lot of guilt on his own part as well that didn't belong to him. Right. But, but he has his own stuff that he had to work through. Well, also but he loves end, you and he wants to, he, yeah. he wanted to be your protector and your, exactly. I get that too. Yeah. So it, it was a rocky couple of years where um, I thought he might leave and he didn't. He stuck it out and it was really a major roller coaster. I had some friends that were amazing that also stepped up and helped me. Um, and over the two years, I really kind of, he was writing it all down and putting it into some kind of a book format, which I've never published, but I have some kind of a draft of, but it allows me to see the whole progression. Right. And um, it was through that that I was actually able to see that I was groomed, that mm-hmm. I was under his control, and that I really had no free will, even as an adult. Um, and so I forgave myself. So I love that you then did foster care and you adopted two kids. Mm-hmm. And then you spend the next two decades taking your experience. I think probably with your podcast, you'll find, you found themes in those of us who have experienced these things. I think we either end up perpetuating it or killing yeah. ourselves or <laughs> yeah. for those, for those of us who have survived some of this, you, you're suicidal, you perpetuate, you become the perpetrator or you end up in the prison system or you do what you did. Yeah, and you, you have extremes. And it, it's your, it's whatever coping mechanism that you do to get to where you threw it, it's any of that is okay. I was as addicted as anyone else. I just happened to be addicted to work and to studying because it was my escape. It was where I found that the chaos was under control and it was where I felt in control. And it was also having had the experience of being accepted to work, it was where I felt wanted. I felt right. connected. So I was very much a workaholic. And that's where my outlet was. Right. And again, in that case, it was something that then helped me. There was lots of good side effects to <laughs> that kind of an addiction. Right. right. I mean, yeah, I know. I was like, attendance. <laughs> right. Which was one of your fears. Granted. Yeah. I mean, like I get it. Yeah. And it wasn't, I mean, I, I think being a workaholic and you're not around for your parents and your relationship, and that can be pretty detrimental in and of itself. But yeah. you're also doing all these things for abused kids, intellectually challenged adults, yep. foster care, adopted, yep. um, nonprofit. Like you really funneled yourself into helping people, not only in the leadership of the financial services yeah. industry. Yeah. I mean, you, you did some really great things. It was, was, did you ever feel like it was at the detriment of your family or did you feel like you had a no, decent balance? Because See, initially, I love that. Yeah. Because initially when we, so my husband and I decided that we wanted to adopt and he had worked when he did work, he worked for, um, emotionally this is disturbed children as well that were in the system. So they were residential treatment kids from the ages of eight to 18 and he was the over, part of the overnight staff when he worked there. So, and then later when he left there, he worked with um, mentally disabled adults and that were in group homes. So he always had this caring, I mean, he was just a generous, sweet, um, loving guy. And 
he um, he always had this that nurturing kind of nature around him. It was great with kids, and he wanted to give back too. So we chose to adopt. We we fostered to adopt, and we um, took in. At that time, we took in, they were 22 months old, and they were special needs twins. They were nonverbal at 22 months. And so we were learning sign language and, I mean, all kinds of, um, it was a crazy period of time. So my focus really was um, our kids got involved in what we were doing. So my yeah. husband ran a school bank, I mean, a food bank for a school, and my kids got involved with it. And... Um, it was just one of these things that we just wanted our children to know that while they were fortunate, not everybody was. Yeah. Um, we all needed to do our part to help. But it really didn't go much beyond an immediate circle until later. Um, and there was a catalyst for that. All right. <laughs> There's so much in this story. Are we jumping into when you were 49 or was this before? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I really spent 20 years, um, really, my husband was a stay-at-home parent. He raised our four children. Um, he's an amazing giving guy. And he, um, he, as our children grew older, he had difficulty figuring out, you know, it was kind of like a mother, right, who goes through when the kids grow up and they're like, now what, who am I? What do I do now? He kind of went through that himself. And we had explored the thought of taking in more kids, adopting more children. And I basically had said, I'm not ready for that. And I don't know if I can adopt again in our forties. Um, but I'm willing to do more, but let's figure out what that is. Um, and I was 46 when we moved up into our second home up in Maine. And I met a teacher of an alternative school, which my, my younger two really needed some special help. And we found that school there. And she was an incest survivor. And so it was the first time in my life that I ever connected with a survivor that openly talked. And it was one of these... Oh my God, somebody understands me. I'm not that different. I, it's like, and so it was like the first time that I really felt understood. And I started to kind of then formulate, how do I make this bigger? How do I give that gift of really feeling in the community and feeling accepted and feeling like you're not different, that you're not isolated, that you're not alone to other survivors? Because nobody should ever feel the way that I have lived my life up to that point. I'm not, I was loved. I was absolutely loved. I had an adoring husband. But at the same time, I, while somebody can empathize with you, unless you've been through it, they don't truly understand. So, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, and it, I, I don't know how to, how to explain that differently. I, and, and I'm yeah. sure that's for anything, any yeah. trauma that you go through. You're, you you find your tribe, you find, the, you find groups that can help you because they've gone through it themselves, right? Right. Well, with incest, it's not something anybody's going to say, hey, I'm an incest survivor, or at least not very frequently. And so finding those other folks is very difficult. Yeah. And I wanted to change that. So I started formulating plans to do it. And then just a couple of years later, I, I don't know exactly how all of this fell into place because I have a little bit of your outline. Mm -hmm. um, 
you went through another trauma. Yeah. So, like I said, I was the primary uh, uh, breadwinner for the family. And my husband didn't work. He volunteered pretty much whole time at the school where my kids were. He ran their food bank. Um, but I would travel every other week to Atlanta, Georgia, where my com- my corporation was. And I would work from home one week and I would be in Atlanta the, the following week. And while I was away on a business trip, um, I basically got a call and then was trying to call home and um, ended up waking up my 14-year-old twins at the time. And they then discovered that their father was um, on the floor. Um, They couldn't get him to respond, to wake up. Um, He was seizing. They didn't know what to do. Um, So the other one ran to help wake up his twin. And um, when I finally did get a hold of them, they were like, we shook him. We kicked him. We put water on him. We can't get him to do anything. And so I called the neighbor at 6 a.m. And the neighbor came down and tried CPR, um, all of that. And my husband actually um, ended up dying that day. And my children actually watched him die, the twins. Um, It was very traumatic, um, to say the least. Um, And then over a number of months, it was eventually declared as a suicide. and it was like this perfect storm of crap that happened the night before uh, that he um, didn't see another way out and he was drunk. And I think in that drunk wasn't thinking clearly and um, just went too far. So um, it was a huge, huge loss for all of us. But for me, um, he was the one person who had stood beside me my entire life and truly adored me and knew everything and loved me anyway and put up with all my crap and understood why I needed to control and was okay with it and knew all of that. And he was an amazing father. Um, my, I, my, my whole world exploded again. And here again, my work stepped up. Different company now, but my work stepped up Again, this was six years ago, so this is corporate America today. But I had the president of the company call me and tell me, take the amount of time you need. I was like, I only have two weeks. He goes, take the amount of time that you need, we will cover you. I had, um, because it was an undetermined cause of death, before life insurance would pay out, mm-hmm. I, they had to prove that I wasn't involved. And so I was struggling a little bit with how do I bury him, all this stuff, right? And my um, my employer says to me, we're going to get this you know, small policy through, you know, fossil policy. And they were like, we're going to get this paid. And so they basically told the insurer that if you don't pay it, you figure out what you need to get this paid. You need to call the coroner, call the coroner. But it wasn't in Paul. It wasn't in there. And if you need, we'll cancel our corporate program with you if you don't get this paid so they got me paid from them but it took me another three months to get a final cause of death and then have his other insurance pay up but so that's the kind of support that I got I got um one of my employees who's basically the person on the other end of the night uh, of the phone 
in the middle of the night that I was went back to having what floored me was all the stuff that I thought that I had dealt with as when I was 28 to 30 all of a sudden because I had lost my safe place which was him came back and now I'm having nightmares again I'm back in PTSD I'm back through all this stuff and in that I don't have somebody waking me up I'm having nightmares and I'm in literally in the closet and I can't come out of this childlike state I'm feeling as if he's still there we're trying all kinds of strategies with my therapist in terms of how do you how do you get yourself connected when I'm sitting in that closet and we ended up what we ended up doing what actually worked was we ended up speed dialing my friend um but the big thing that helped was that we doused a stuffed animal that my husband had given me when I went off to college and I still had and we doused him in his aftershave and so it was this sensory thing <laughs> I, I mean my first reaction is that's a little odd and my second reaction is who the hell cares if it's a little exactly. odd I mean <laughs> good god Nancy I mean it's like be creative here I mean it's like <laughs> just like, what do you need? Ashes on the teddy bear. Done. Done deal. Like, who cares? Exactly. Right? But, yeah, I mean, I had a dog that we were thinking about trying to get trained to wake me up. Um, but, it, it, I mean, it was just another kind of crazy period over. Oh, I ended up, my, my employer reported me to um, all kinds of different things. So I ended up not working. I, I worked from home for about a month. Then I came back to work and I had to go back traveling. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to travel, then I need an accommodation that if my children are calling, I'm taking the call because my kids need to know that they can reach me. And um, they were like, okay. And I just remember once I was in a, <laughs> I was presenting to the press, the U.S. president, and I get a call from my kids, and I'm like, "Sorry, I got to take this." <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. President. Yeah. That's someone more important than you. Exactly. Oh my God, that's amazing! Wow. But he was um, like, "Okay, go." Yeah. <laughs> Well, good for you, though, for sticking to your guns, because it would be hard to think like, okay, this is one time when maybe this person's a little more important, but I'm glad. So things kind of explode for you all over again. Yeah. From that point, and now we're tail of the bell, where you are, you're huge in the financial world. Mm -hmm. And now you're coaching people incest survivors and you started a program well you start your new start start in georgia and you also started a program for female colleagues based in india there's so much we could have like a six-hour podcast (laughs) but i know when your husband passed away you're 49 and we have that period of time and then you told you put the president on hold (laughs) And, and now we're here how are your younger boys how the kids how is it they're amazing i think when when families when tragedy happens family either explode or they pull together and i was fortunate that mine pulled together my oldest son when my husband died my oldest son was 24 and he was just finishing up his master's program and he moved back in with me to help 
and his girlfriend came with them. And so um, they stayed with me. They moved, actually moved with me to Georgia. And he, so he stayed with me and really, really helped. Um, and then my next one um, was also very helpful. He was 22. My twins had more of a, um, more trauma to process. I mean, they were, their whole, they didn't just lose their dad. They lost their way of life. I moved them down to another state um, because I had to, you know, I moved to where my job was. Um, and I, um, they were, they had been raised by him. I mean, he was the primary caregiver and now I'm a single parent and um, our styles are very different. <laughs> Yeah, and you've been the world. I mean, you may have been super involved with your family, but you're still the breadwinner. Yeah, that doesn't. So I'm change. working full time. I'm I'm a single mother now. Very traumatized children. Um, I was fortunate again in that moving down here. I found amazing support systems. I found a mentor for them who had also what he had, he had his father had committed suicide, and he had found him, and his father had. Um, shot himself so um, he connected with them in a way that they really needed he was an experiential counselor so he would take them and um, take them out they got involved in an equine therapy program down oh I um, love that it was amazing for them they got it's involved amazing with, yep they got involved with a special equine special olympics team where they were the um they were the kind of quasi coaches. Um, so they got to see that, you know, there's always going to be people that are brighter than you and other people that are, that are less fortunate than you. And it's all okay. Just be who you are. Um, and they got to appreciate that everybody brings something to the table. So it, it, they're good now. Um, one of them is finishing up um, a, a, a course, a technical college course. And the other one just um, is starting back to school in out 20. And he's starting college. So we're at a community college. So. And then there's you. Clearly, clearly. I mean, I don't have to make the connection between you as an entrepreneur and what you're doing now and the connection to your struggles because yeah. you help people through exactly what you went. But your website's more than that. It's You've reached out to other countries. Yeah. You've taken it bigger. And now you want your website and your podcast to be hearing stories so we feel less alone, but also resources. Yeah. So How, I, how's that journey with you so from it's really just when your husband died and you were thrown back into everything all over again. And now yeah. here you are smiling. <laughs> Other people can't see it, but she smiles at me. <laughs> um, how, how has that journey been? So it's been a roller coaster. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I think that's my, my story of my life is the roller coaster ride. Right. Um, but if there's one thing that I've learned having gone through what I had been through was, you know what? I have enough self-confidence to know that I can get through because I've been through my own suicidal uh, thoughts, my own, you know, my own journey, all, all of that. Um, but when he died, when after I moved down to Georgia, I joined a life after loss group, a widows and widowers group. And again, you know, trying to find your tribe, right? And they were warm and they were accepting and they were helpful. But there's, I'm on the younger side that I was only 49 
Um, I had killed ch- young ch- children still in the home, so dealing with that. And my husband died from suicide, so I'm dealing with that. And I'm an incest survivor dealing with my loss of my safe place. And it was, again, feeling different and alone, even though I'm with other widows and widowers. So that kind of then kind of came to me that, you know what, I, I need to do what I need to do to step into. I don't want anybody else to have to deal with this the way that I had to deal with it. And so that's why I'm really trying to create community. Um, and I'm trying to say, you know what, I call it Yana, Y-A-N-A. And Yana is you are not alone. Mm-hmm. And I firmly believe in it. Um, I actually named my dog Yana <laughs> because she was born on the first anniversary of my husband's death. And so she's my, she starts and ends my podcast. <laughs> That's amazing. Nancy, thank you so much for sharing your story today yeah. with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to get naked with us. If you'd like to bear it all with me, get in touch. Your story is unique and valuable. Let's show it off.